This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to all topics that lie on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with uh, colleagues and hydrogen experts, Julia Wainwright and Alex Classic. How are both of you? Good, Hill. Thanks for having us. Gladly. Yes. And uh, so, so, Julia, this is uh, is our first conversation. Alex and I have been talking, you know, off and on for, for quite some time. But but I, I see that you are a a Wellesley graduate. Yep, class of twenty nineteen. Were you a uh, scream tunnel participant? I, I, uh, I'm a runner, and so so all I know about Wellesley is from the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of my favorite memories are from screaming at runners going by. Were there any uh, fellow screamers involved in any romance from from the from the scream tunnel? Were there <laughs> I any? Witness a couple of kisses, but I don't think they led to anything more. Nothing led. <laughs> do they? Uh, do Do you think that will come back? The Boston Marathon this year is what September, right? It's so it's uh, in the fall rather than the spring. And post COVID, is anybody? interested in kissing strangers again? Probably not, but I wouldn't put it past some. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you that I I ran all the way through the scream tunnel without stopping uh, because I knew that if I stopped, I wouldn't get to get started again. Um, (laughs) So so that was my my one experience with the scream tunnel. It was 70, 75 degrees. It was abnormally hot. uh, And so I needed just to to keep going (laughs) or get stuck. Too many miles outside of Boston. Yep. So, and Alex, uh, we were talking just just beforehand as a University of Delaware graduate, uh, not not one of your classmates, but one of your fellow alums is the president of the United States now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Biden. Uh, he actually spoke at uh, at my commencement and the commencement before mine, and I think uh, you know the commencements after and and before that too. So. Uh, you know, we have a, a pretty strong tradition of that because since he was our state senator at the time. But, uh, you know, it's a fascinating color about Wellesley that I didn't really know about. So, uh, you know, I'll have to look into that at some point. Yeah. We well, are in Boston now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cambridge. But, uh, you know, haven't really seen too much of the marathon in the past couple of years. I guess do, do, do the Wellesleyan people not smile on non-Wellesleyan people joining their scream tunnel or, or would Alex be welcome to join that? Uh, you know, I think it's the Canabridgians who might be the snooty ones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, so, so we are here not to talk about the Boston Marathon or Wellesley, but to talk about hydrogen. Uh, and and I, I have to confess that, that I was emailing you guys one night earlier this week as I was doing some research trying to prepare for this. And I got distracted by uh, Fish Setless. I don't know if either of you uh, are fans of the band Fish, but but they have uh, a song called Hydrogen that was uh, kind of instrumental in sets. And I started chasing breadcrumbs on the internet as I was doing research and learned more about uh, when Hydrogen was part of their sets and when the song Simple uh, replaced it in their set list. Um, and, uh, 
hydrogen, uh, I will also admit, I find not simple at all to, to, to connect the thread here. Um, and so you are going to have to work with me um, as we discuss the, the, the opportunity for hydrogen in a low carbon environment. And really the catalyst for this for this conversation was a paper that you guys co-authored, what, maybe about a month or two ago, looking at the kind of the massive capex uh, required um, for, for hydrogen really to become more of a part of our um, kind of greening economy. Um, Alex, can you maybe summarize um, some of the key takeaways uh, of the paper and help to add context to where we are in our thinking? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so, you know, as people are more and more interested in achieving deep decarbonization subsequent to the Paris agreements, um, hydrogen has popped up more and more. And I think the original approach that people had was, you know, we can electrify a lot of things and then we can green the electricity grid and, you know, everything will be hunky-dory and we can move on that way. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, you know, the wind and the sun have particular hours where they blow or shine. And uh, a lot of our, our actual demands for electricity don't match up to that very well, particularly in things like the home heating sector or in the automotive sectors. And so you need some type of uh, a molecule that can store this energy in order to be able to serve it up into those industries. And so hydrogen has been something that has been uh, gaining more and more prominence in these national strategies or roadmaps for decarbonization. And so we thought, well, you know, let's add a little bit of realism or color to these strategies and think about, well, if this is how much hydrogen you plan on producing every year, well, how much is the equipment that it would take to produce that? How much would that cost? And there's two main ways of producing hydrogen. Uh, and so you can have electrolyzers that are powered by renewable resources, uh, or you can have methane reformers or gasification units uh, with or without carbon capture. And in this, in this particular instance, we, um, we modeled it with carbon capture. And we modeled it in a, in a low and a high case to kind of get mm -hmm. a sense of, of what was going on there. So, Julie, do you, do you think you could talk a little bit more about the low and the high case and the differences between them? Yeah, definitely. When we were developing our demand outlooks, we came up with these two cases. And the low case or base case um, is our most likely scenario. And then the high hydrogen case, which the high hydrogen case assumes more ambitious development of hydrogen infrastructure globally. So some of the big differences here are that in the base case, by 2050, hydrogen is still mostly being used as an industrial gas, which is mainly how it's used today. But in this case, it does start to penetrate the energy market, um, making up around 2.5% of global final energy demand by 2050. And most of this growth in the energy sector is taking place in Europe. Uh, we focus this growth in Europe largely because right now a lot of the countries in Europe have already released ambitious hydrogen strategies. So we mm -hmm. wanted to keep this initial development of the base case um, to these areas where hydrogen announcements had already been made. And then for the high hydrogen case, we increased the total final energy penetration by 2.5% again, so a total of 5% by 2050. And we expanded geographically where we thought this additional production would take place. And so, the numbers on yeah. these base versus high, I mean, it was mm -hmm. 265 billion on the base and 1.3 trillion or something on the high. I mean, there's a huge order of magnitude difference. Yeah. So in the high case, we, we had already included pretty ambitious goals for Europe. 
But in the high case, we expanded the growth, particularly in China and North America. These places, although the policy supports aren't there um, right now, there's a lot of potential for these regions to become pretty big players in this hydrogen um, economy. And what is there a catalyst, Alex, that, that kind of opens in that high case, uh, opens the, the non-European regions to, to, to more of it? Or is it just kind of a seeing what Europe is doing and copycatting it? So I, I think that there's a couple of catalysts here. Uh, the first thing is that in the East Asian countries like South Korea or Japan, they're kind of um, agnostic about what type of hydrogen they want at first, right? They want to create this ecosystem of use and they want to do it at the lowest cost possible. And so they're willing to live with gray hydrogen or, or hydrogen that, uh, you know, isn't particularly low carbon. The thing about that is that when you use gray carbon in something like the transportation segment, because you're electrochemically getting the energy out of the, the hydrogen as opposed to burning it in some type of internal combustion engine, uh, you get something like 60% efficiency out of the fuel cell as opposed to 25-35% out of the internal combustion engine. Mm -hmm. So by taking gray hydrogen and putting it into these markets, uh, you can get carbon reductions uh, on the transportation segment, even using fossil natural gas as your feedstock. So there's uh, an, an, a different approach to the chicken and the egg in the uh, East Asian countries than in the European countries. And because we just focused this analysis on low carbon developments and announcements of low carbon projects, you don't really see that in the base case. And then in the high case, uh, you know, the ambition of these countries is to become net zero. And so at some point in the 2030s, 2040s, they are going to be making the switch over to blue or green hydrogen, as it were. And that's when you're really going to start seeing a lot more uh, hydrogen happening. Uh, one thing I will note is that, you know, to achieve a 2.5% of final energy use achieved or, or supplied by mm -hmm. hydrogen, we anticipate that's going to take something like $1.2 trillion by 2050 and two point, or I'm sorry, $265 billion in the ramp up to 2030 for that. So these are huge numbers and they're a very small amount of the, the final energy end use. And so there's a lot of upside potential for them to grow. And that's why, you know, we anticipate that there's the high case and, and in the future we'll probably have, you know, uh, additional cases that see higher percentages in the final energy end use. And really, just before we get into some of those numbers a little bit, the, the main thing to understand about gray hydrogen, if, if I understand it correctly, is it's not a low carbon solution. It, it's perhaps lower carbon than, than some of the, 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 the gas vehicles, gasoline or diesel, but, but it is not low carbon in the way that a lot of the uh, solar, wind, or green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, because there's no carbon capture with it. Is that right? Right. You know, if you like numbers, you can think about you know gasoline being maybe a 100 or a 90 for your carbon intensity, and uh, you know hydrogen being something like uh, I don't know 60 or 62, maybe 67, depending on what you have. Right. So it's it's lower carbon, but uh, it's not it's not all the way there. For gray. For gray, correct. Great. Whereas the green and the blue, because of the carbon capture, are low to nothing. Well, I, yeah. So, you know, it, this is the thing that blows some people's mind is that if you take methane that is from something like a, a dairy manure, and that methane would otherwise get uh, out into the atmosphere where it would contribute something like 20 times more to global warming than carbon dioxide. So if you capture that gas and upgrade it and then use that in your steam methane reformer, 
you could actually create blue hydrogen that is carbon negative, you know, negative to a, 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 a almost extreme extent, you know, like negative 100. And so uh, that's one of the hottest markets that we see going on here in the United States. And it's one of the drivers behind the, the renewable identification number three market, the RIN three market going up so much in the past year or so. That was dairy manure? Yeah, dairy manure, cow manure. Capturing. Um, manure. So we don't have to get into it in too much detail here, but <laughs> what's the process of capturing the methane emissions from cow manure? Okay, well, you know, you would scrape the manure into a sealed container where it would digest in an oxygen-free environment, anaerobic digestion, and you would get a mixture of carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and methane coming off of that, along with some, you know, nasty stuff like hydrogen sulfide. And so you can clean up the gas. It's like 60% methane. And you clean up the gas and you can put it into a pipeline or into a car or, you know, whatever can burn natural gas. You know, you might have to add a little bit of LPG or something to make it meet pipeline specifications for BTU content. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, you know, it's interchangeable with any other molecule and again, can be carbon negative. And so if you sell that molecule into California's low carbon fuel standard market, you could get enormous benefits financially from that. But there would seem to be a real problem with scale uh, or something like that. There is a problem with scale, but it's actually not where you think it is. They're running out of vehicles to put these molecules into is, is one of the problems right now. Um, people seem to be leapfrogging CNG vehicles for battery electric vehicles. And so, uh, you know, th there aren't that many uh, places to sell it into the, the LCFS market. And so you're seeing all sorts of fun agreements between uh, uh, truck makers and RNG providers to capture these credits, uh, both the, the RIN and the LCFS credits. Okay, RNG being renewable natural gas. Correct. All right. Well, so, so Julia, you know, on the, the, the money, you know, some of these figures are huge just to think about, right? So are we looking at, in all cases, public-private partnerships? I mean, how big is government um, versus, uh, call it private innovation, uh, in our thought process in some of these numbers? I think it's going to be a mixture of all of the above. Um, like you said, these numbers are pretty big and to achieve the production that we see moving forward, it's going to take a lot of government support in order to kind of kickstart it. And then a lot of private research money also to try to get everything to be more efficient. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think all of the above. <laughs> and does that put hydrogen in more of the developed country world of opportunities? Um, or are we seeing you know, just because of the scale of government, call it intervention, government funding involved? Is this something that non-wealthy countries can participate in? I think initially it will be more wealthy countries because there is such a huge initial capital investment that's necessary for this large scale development, especially for countries that are trying to export it. Um, mm -hmm. The capital investment would be huge and it would be difficult for more developing countries to invest, I think, initially. And are the exporting countries already the, the countries that we associate with energy exports today, that those that have an established refining capacity and or uh, fossil fuels in the ground? Uh, right now, the three 
major exporting company, uh, countries that we're expecting are Canada, Chile, and Australia. So, mm-hmm. so some natural gas exposure uh, for, for most, if not all of those. Yeah, I'll just mention, you know, Chile is an interesting example where they have uh, just a terrific renewable resource. And so they, they want to convert that into, you know, a global market share as opposed to, you know, Canada and Australia, who are very much looking to you know, use their natural gas infrastructure to, to leverage that into the hydrogen economy. And I'll just add Saudi Arabia to the mix and the whole, sure. you know, Middle East area. And, and they have you know, the best of both worlds, right? They have just a phenomenal solar resource and ultra low gas and, and uh, oil feedstock prices too. So uh, they have big plans to be players in this market as well. I saw a headline, uh, I think this week, um, that, that Oregon, the you know, state here in the US that passed some sort of hydrogen motivated legislation that they wanted to do some study, I, I think, I think all they're doing is a study at this point in time, right? With, with results to be considered in 2022. I mean, is that Oregon is not a state that I associate with energy export? Um, you know, I guess they've got uh, timber or something like that. But is 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 or is is there a place for Oregon uh, within the hydrogen uh, exporting conversation? Well, so Oregon has a very, really interesting example. They have targets to blend renewable natural gas and or hydrogen into their pipeline. And they actually have, um, these are voluntary targets. So, you know, if the, if the utility ever thinks that the price is getting too high, there's off ramps for the consumer. Um, but they're thinking about, you know, levels as high as I think it's 10% by, oh, 10 to 30% by 2050, right? It's going to ratchet up by 5% every couple of years. And so they actually want to consume this for their own purposes. And it's very different than uh, California's LCFS market where there's a spot price and you can sell into it. They're offering their utilities the option to uh, build out the renewable natural gas or hydrogen infrastructure and then incorporate that build out in the rate base that they charge their consumers. So it's very much a, you know, top down, vertically integrated approach as opposed to California's more market based uh, approach. Um, and this kind of gets back to Julia's point earlier where, you know, the, the business model is unclear and government intervention is seeming to come in all sorts of various angles. And so people are kind of uh, kicking the tires on various approaches and seeing how they work. Well, the, I think you guys both recently uh, collaborated on a presentation looking at South Korea um, and not, not quite a business model in the form of a, a company, but, but in terms of a country. Um, and Julia, this was really based around an import strategy, right? And, and South Korea being fairly advanced relative to other countries and, and their hydrogen bulbs. Yeah, so South Korea doesn't have, so basically they're initially planning on using gray hydrogen, but want to switch to more renewable hydrogen in future. And they don't have the natural resources, I guess, to produce such huge amounts of hydrogen themselves. So a big portion of their hydrogen strategy is to import from Australia because Mm -hmm. Australia has good solar resources and they also have a lot of carbon storage potential that um, South Korea doesn't have. So they can send both green and blue hydrogen uh, from Australia to South Korea. And that was really based on 
the hydrogen in vehicle uses, correct? We focus mostly on um, vehicle use, yeah. Okay. And, and, and Alex, if I understood it correctly, that the, the cost of the hydrogen electric vehicle is, what was it, twice that of a gas-fired uh, vehicle? The, the whole buildup was pretty high. So, so there was, again, a lot of opportunity for government subsidy to help. Oh, yeah. So, you know, uh, again, I like the numbers, right? So I'll give you a couple of numbers so that you can have a sense. So if you wanted to buy, you know, a midsize sedan in South Korea, it'd probably be like $35,000 or so. And if you wanted to buy the only fuel cell vehicle that's on the market, uh, it would cost you uh, at least the manufacturer suggested retail price is somewhere like uh, fifty to $60,000. I forget the exact number off the top of my head. But there's a lot of subsidy involved, right? So you can get a local subsidy and you can get a federal subsidy from the South Korean government. And it will bring you essentially into parity with the internal combustion engine price. But, uh, you know, people don't only buy vehicles for the purchase price. You know, there's mm -hmm. also, um, you know, stereo systems and leather seats and uh, refueling stations, right? And so... In the city of Seoul, there's only like two refueling stations for the entire like 8 million people. And so there's a lot of consumer hesitancy to purchase these things because the infrastructure just really isn't there for them to enjoy all of the freedom of the road that you get with an internal combustion engine. And, and is it the demand that, the, I mean, that there's the cost structure, but, but the other piece that, that is really kind of inhibiting some of hydrogen is, is creating uh, a unique hydrogen demand uh, relative to, say, battery electric vehicles or you know, other forms of energy? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably going to be some cachet to it, at least, because, you know, it's like the latest and greatest technology. And, uh, you know, like, so the people who are kind of pro-risk might, you know, show it off as like a, a bona fide of their, their, their status. Um, but, uh, you know, really, I think over time, people are going to find a lot of opportunities for the deployment of these vehicles based off of, you know, not only their operational benefits, but, but some of the constraints of battery electric vehicles, you know, like range and weight and other things like that. And so there's going to be a balance that's found. And, you know, right now, EVs are, are winning the day. But I think as, uh, you know, we, we install more and more of these fleets on the road, We'll start seeing a bunch of headwinds that you know give fuel cell vehicles a bit more uh, a bit more to their sales. Julia, do you see the, the the BEV or the battery electric vehicle versus hydrogen electric vehicle as an either or? I mean, is this going to be one of those things? I remember years ago that what was a competitor to the DVD? There was like HD Data Mac. No, it was after that. Blu-ray. Blu-ray. There was. Yeah, it may have been Blu-ray, but my, my friend got his parents whatever the, the, the piece of technology that lost. You know, he, he got them for Christmas and then it lost like that very next year and they stopped making whatever those kind of high definition DVDs are. I mean, is this an either or thing where we're going to be in a BEV world or uh, what's the hydrogen EV? It's not HEV. But. Yeah, I think it'll be a combination of the two. There are different um, sectors where fuel cells would beat out. BEVs um, in the heavy duty or medium duty, the fuel cells could be better than battery electric. But for light duty vehicles, battery electric will probably remain ahead. Of course, there'll be some people who want the newest, best. <laughs> so fuel cells, they'll still, the light duty fuel cells will still be out there. But um, I think it'll be 
they'll work together rather than against each other. And does that put more of the it's it's, it's abbreviation LCEV or, or uh, FCEV for, for the fuel cells? Fuel cell electric vehicle FCEV. Yeah. Yeah. So and I'll just throw I'll just throw another segment of people out there. You know, I can also imagine you know doomsday preppers with their solar panels on their roof. You know, electrolyzing water in their house and then having, uh, you know, their their fuel cell vehicle out in their driveway that they can power themselves. So, you know, I think there's all sorts of markets that you can hit with these things. That's a very niche market. The, the, those <laughs> folks were alive and well, I guess last year. We tried to get we, we went camping. We tried to get the uh, the just add water kind of dehydrated food that lasts for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Couldn't find it uh, because all the doomsday preppers on COVID had gotten food to last them the next 30 years. Oh, man. Um, so <laughs> there is a market out there for, for, for these folks. So I'm not... Yeah, the overlap between them and the well-to-do might be more than... <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's how, Julie, your, your, your comments a second ago on kind of long haul and, and, and light vehicle, it sounds like that there's potentially a significant opportunity within perhaps the trucking segment and more of the commercial uh, vehicles than say the aside from the car owners who, who are preparing for doomsdays or, or want people to talk about their cars mm -hmm. yeah so with the long haul trucks batteries can get really heavy they take up a lot of space and the time to recharge is downtime that you wouldn't have to account for with fuel cell electric vehicles because you can fill them up the same in the same amount of time you would be able to fill up a diesel truck or gas truck so mm -hmm. those are some of the reasons why fuel cells could win out over batteries for the heavy duty trucking market alex may have more to offer on that i have lots to say but you know we can keep going <laughs> well, then now, now I'm intrigued. What, what, what would you have to say about it? Well, you know, um, so, you know, in, in the whole Texas big freeze thing, you know, I, uh -huh. I imagine that people's cars were a refuge for them. And, you know, for, for several days at a time, your battery electric vehicle isn't going to be able to, you know, provide you the heat that either a fuel cell vehicle or an internal combustion engine vehicle would be able to provide. And not just heat, but, you know, charging. And so as reliability becomes uh, more and more strained by people's, uh, I don't know, um, by the evolution of the grid, uh, you know, I think that this type of, uh, you know, on-site reliability that you get currently from an internal combustion engine would be something that factors in for people's interest in the fuel cell electric vehicle. And, you know, that's just like a residential example. But if you mm -hmm. have, you know, a commercial trucking fleet that's electrified, if you can keep operating in that type of scenario, you are, you know, so much better off than your competitors if they have battery electric vehicles. And so, again, there's going to be this, you know, equilibrium that we find between the two technologies. And, you know, for people that have uh, two cars, it, it might make sense to have one of each, you know, one for your long haul. Hey, we're going to drive to see grandma over Thanksgiving and, and another one for commuting to and from work. Well, the, one of the stories in Texas with, with that freeze was all these guys who had brought or all these people who had bought the f-150s with the generator in them uh that were able to keep their houses going with their trucks that you know i'm sure as they were debating the purchase of that truck at least one member of the family was saying this is absurd why, why would we ever need a generator in our truck but within a few short weeks they were proven right <laughs> i can see some happy husbands there I, I guess i shouldn't assume that it was the husbands that were pro the <laughs> f-150 but in Japan, they sell these fuel cell vehicles, again, with the charging cords for the exact same purpose that you that you mentioned, where you can plug it into your house and it's a reliability thing. And there's mm -hmm. like this um, 
harmonious society desire within there, you know, in Toyota's branding where, you know, the, the, the car can provide reliability in these times when, you know, the electric power grid might go down. And theirs are, you know, uh, you know, they have earthquakes, right? So they, they have a little bit more of uh, constraints in that regard, but uh, it's the same idea that you just mentioned. So, I mean, the, the other thing on, on, you know, potential demand, you, you mentioned earlier to, today, Alex, about the, the IMO 2050 as a place for hydrogen or, or in some relation, uh, ammonia. And, and I, I said before we started recording that, that I'm not totally clear on the uh, ammonia-hydrogen relationship. If I understand it, it a little bit, it's that ammonia is a good transporter or kind of storage vessel for ammonia or for hydrogen. Is that... How does IMO 2050 fit in terms of kind of long haul as it relates to ships, uh, maritime traffic rather than cars? All right. Well, why don't I take tackle the hydrogen to ammonia part and then I'll ask Julia to do the, the IMO goals. So, you know, hydrogen is great in the sense that there's a lot of energy to it by weight, but it's the lightest substance on Earth. Right. And volumetrically, it really does not have. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, it's very hard to get the energy into a confined volume. So a lot of issues with hydrogen are compressing it into, you know, high pressure containers or liquefying it into liquid hydrogen. Um, but you can get around all of that if you can chemically add nitrogen and create ammonia, which is NH3. And by doing that, you can significantly increase the energy density of the fuel and that allows easier containment and transfer properties. And in addition to that, you know, there's a huge ammonia industry across the globe and they have all sorts of interchangeable tanks and parts and transfer regulations, right? And so uh, not only are you increasing the energy density, but you're putting it into a global liquid market of a fungible commodity. And so there's a lot of interest in, uh, in putting low carbon hydrogen in ammonia not only to uh, decarbonize the fertilizer and you know things like explosive industries, but also because ammonia could be used as a fuel. And I'll hand it over to, to Julia to talk talk about that. Yeah, so I can start with um, a little background, I guess. So the IMO yeah. is the International Maritime Organization, and they come up with a lot of the regulatory framework for the shipping industry. So things like safety and environmental regulations. And then IMO 2050 is aiming for 70% carbon dioxide reduction for international shipping and at least 50% reduction in total greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And these are pretty ambitious goals. And we think the shipping that shipping companies will need to start thinking about switching to lower carbon or carbon free fuels pretty soon if the ambitions are going to be met by 2050. So recently, Alex and I were looking into hydrogen and ammonia fuel cells for the shipping industry. And the big picture takeaway from our research is that although the fuels are more expensive right now and some changes will likely be needed to the designs of the ships in order to use the alternative fuels, um, there's a lot of potential for hydrogen and ammonia um, to help meet these IMO 2050 uh, targets. And this would be the next leg, uh, I guess, because the IMO 2020 put pressure on the sulfur oxide, it was the sulfur oxide, um, and, and the whole bunker fuel uh, once you got into international waters. And, and so this one more directed at CO2 and mm -hmm. an increasing percentage uh, as we work toward lower emissions. 
yeah, so it's it's the the build on of that. But I'll also mention that it really helps the whales, right? So uh, in order to meet the IMO 2050 goals, you're going to probably want to sail your ship slower because uh, ammonia is less energy dense and therefore you can't have as much of it on your ship. And so unless you want to refuel all the time, you got to do something called slow steaming, which is basically like conserving a lot of uh, fuel uh, as you as you sail around. And because you move through the water slower, you create a lot less noise from the hull of your boat, and you also create a lot less propeller cap cavitation. And these things significantly reduce the sound coming off of your boat. And because you don't have, you know, internal combustion pistons firing all the time, the machinery noise is also reduced. So not only does it get you to your 2050 goals for IMO on carbon, but there's also some noise requirements in the IMO regulations that uh, it'll also help you meet. And is the whale community, I mean, obviously the whales themselves don't have a voice in this, but, but those who speak for the whales, are, are they on board or are they worried about other things? Well, you know, they probably don't like the whole ammonia might be toxic and we're sailing around the world with ships full of ammonia type of thing. But otherwise, they're thrilled. <laughs> so, so that was my next question. I'm going to I'm going to read it to you because I said I would. But in, in your presentation, it says hydrogen poses a similar fire and explosion risk as conventional fuels like natural gas and gasoline. Ammonia shifts the risk from flammability to human health. That doesn't sell me on ammonia. <laughs> What's well, I mean, so it's it's bad for you, but it's harder to combust, right? So, um, yeah, th th there's there's some th there are issues with ammonia, right? So it it has toxicity to it, and there are probably some applications that you don't want to use it in, like a inner city ferries, stuff like that. <laughs> And our analysis showed that, you know, hydrogen, even though the energy density is less than ammonia, um, you can still meet a lot of the requirements of these types of, you know, um, high people, high foot traffic types of uh, events. When we think about international shipping, um, that's where it really has potential. You know, there's not that many people involved on these ships. They're traveling long distances. They can take more safety precautions. Then the age of automation in the future could also help out. We can get people off of these ships more and, you know, have even more of a skeletal crew to reduce the, the, the human health hazard. Okay. So as we're thinking about uh, ammonia or, or hydrogen more specifically, and, and we've talked about some of the exporter strategies and importer strategies, can we bring it down to, and, and these numbers, you know, from 265 billion to, to 1.3 trillion, you know, really kind of big ideas to kind of wrap one's head around. If we bring it down to kind of a business uh, business model uh, perspective, um, you know, there, there's one, I guess, the, 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 the more famous one is Nikola, um, you know, which has some business designs uh, around uh, the, their use of hydrogen. What other, what are the types of business models that you guys are paying uh, most close attention to and seem most sustainable um, from kind of an investor and or consumer perspective? Well, so everyone seems to be focusing on stacking up uh, low carbon fuel standard credits, you know, so there's a huge dollar price associated with each one of these credits. And so that's the name of the game right now. You can also stack the the RIN uh, the RIN credit with that if you're uh, if you're careful. And so 
Um, those are those are the two markets where we're seeing a lot of action in the United States. In Europe, it's it's kind of a different story. They're willing to go for these, you know, guarantees of origin and setting explicit targets. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a lot more a story about um, talking nice with your regulator and getting the development of these projects incorporated into either a rate base or some other type of um, project pipeline. Um, but you know we're seeing we're seeing all sorts of different types of requests. People are interested in you know gas stations or on-site filling stations or forklifts or you know the whole what kind of applications for ammonia can there be that's made from low carbon hydrogen? Um, I don't know, Julie. Have you any ones that I, I missed offhand? I think you got all the major ones that we've seen. Yeah. Where do you guys expect kind of business model leadership? I mean. I, I, from where I sit in, in, in Houston, hydrogen seems to have tons of appeal. Hydrogen with CCUS to the traditional oil producer or, or the traditional you know, integrated super major. Do we expect hydrogen leadership from the traditional energy player? Do we expect it from innovators like Nikola? Do we expect it from government-sponsored uh, uh, entities, all of the above? Well, because there's electrolytic pathways, it's a very interesting mix where you have the traditional oil companies kind of going head to head with the renewable energy producers. And so, um, you know, there's an interesting dynamic there where it's very much exactly what you're talking about, where there's this blue versus green question. Uh, and in all of our outlooks, we're trying to understand, you know, how much blue hydrogen will there be? How much green hydrogen is there uh, or, or can we create? And so, you know, that, that type of dynamic is really almost blurred by the corporation's responses to this, right? So you have companies like Enel or Total that are very much moving into creating renewable energy and almost, I don't want to say they're divesting their, their oil and gas assets, but they're not investing in them the way they used to. Um, and, and then, you know, until recently, Exxon was very much interested in, you know, just doubling down on their trajectory. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think that um, people are going to recalibrate their companies to be more opportunistic in this space. And there are so many opportunities up and down the value chain from the refueling station to the hydrogen production to petrochemical complexes and transportation and storage facilities and, and really there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of innovation pretty much everywhere. So across the board, not, not, not one sector at the moment. All the way down to the cow manure. <laughs> Which has also uh, less than appealing opportunities for job creation. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's probably some of the most valuable stuff on earth right now. Maybe so. All right. Well, I'll ask you each one, one question and we can, can, can leave it there. You know, we've talked a lot about 2015, some of the long-term uh, forecast, but, but there's a lot of headlines coming out that there's hydrogen is one of the kind of the, the most asked about, uh, I could call it energy disruptors that, 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 that I hear about, uh, you know, in, in our roles here at IHS. If you could pick one thing to pay attention to over the next kind of six to 12 months, um, what's the thing that we should be watching um, within the hydrogen framework, whether domestic here in the U.S. or abroad? The thing that I'm watching for is whether Mr. Biden adds a hydrogen pathway to the renewable fuel standard. I think that would be a strong federal driver of getting uh, uh, renewable natural gases into the hydrogen markets nationwide. Should have known you'd give a shout out to the University of Delaware uh, in your answer. <laughs> How about you, Julia? Um, 
I think in the U.S. we've seen a couple of hydrogen power plants being announced, and I think it'll be interesting to see how far or how many more hydrogen power plants will be announced. I don't know. <laughs> I think those... in addition to the fuel cell market, there's a lot of potential for hydrogen in other markets. So to see where that kind of starts to be shown. Where are those uh, announced? Is it one state or multiple states? There's a few. I think one in Pennsylvania, Ohio. I think they also one in Florida. They're kind of smaller plants popping up. Okay. And do they yeah, have financial do they have financial backing or are they press releases at this point? I think just press releases right now. So you know, there's, some, there's some oddly well not oddly, there's some big companies involved and also um, they're not where you really would expect them, you know, like Western Pennsylvania and Ohio aren't really where I expect to be on the forefront of hydrogen, right? I think California or, you know, New England and so uh, it, I agree with Julia. It's really interesting to see these things popping up. Yeah, but if, I, uh, if I'm Western Pennsylvania sitting on a bunch of natural gas, hydrogen is good for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, well thank you both. I, I, uh, I hope we can come back and talk about this uh, again sometime soon. I'm sure we will. Thanks for your time, Hal. Yeah, thanks for having us. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.